The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Have you been with us for the last two weeks? You know that we have set aside these first weeks of the year in January to sort of uh, set a course and, and uh, sort of uh, aim the trajectory of, of the uh, main theme of what we want to emphasize throughout the year 2019. And it's all built out of sort of our uh, core values as a church. One of those happens to be that we are a church that values uh, growing in order to go, growing in our faith in order that we might go out into the world and bring the gospel of Jesus to a lost and dying world. And uh, two weeks ago, I sort of uh, uh, gave a, what I guess it's kind of a state of the church address, if you will, sort of a, uh, an assessment of where we are, what things we're doing well, uh, values-wise, and then laid really a, a pretty direct challenge on all of us in this one particular area of church life where uh, we need some, some work and some challenge and some effort and some instruction and some equipping and some encouragement and all these things, this area of taking the gospel of Jesus into our city, into our region, and out into the world. And, uh, and so I, I, I think if you were here, uh, like myself and others who have spoken to me since then, you felt some of the weight of that on that particular Sunday. And that was the intention, not to, to club you on the head, but just to say here's an area where we, as a church, we need to grow. And it's a great challenge for us. And it's an exciting challenge. Uh, because around us is a, is a massive sea of people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus and be saved. And so uh, it's a great challenge. We have great opportunity. God has given us a ripe field uh, to be able to reach. And uh, we have everything we need to do it well. Uh, and so we heard that a couple of weeks ago, sort of that challenge, and I figured it's, it's rude to challenge people to do something that, that they don't understand how to do. And so we started last week and finished up this morning sort of setting the baseline of the message. What is the gospel? What is the message that God uses to transform the sinful heart and bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the gospel is what we've been asking uh, if I'm going to challenge you to share something with your lost friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members, then you need to understand what is the content of that message that they need to hear and understand and be able to embrace in order to be saved. And so that's what we're doing uh, last week and this week. And then uh, throughout the year, uh, we, we'll spend next Sunday another, another Sunday on the issue. Uh, but then beyond that, throughout the year, we're going to sprinkle... Uh, some opportunities to equip you on exactly how to take this message and deliver it to your lost friends, family, and neighbors. There are many ways of taking this message that we're talking about, the gospel, and bringing it into somebody else's life. There's no one method that is the method that's the only way to do this. There are multiple ways to do it, so long as you get the content. And uh, some of that is shaped by personality and comfort level and different and experience and so forth. And uh, we want to, throughout the year, equip you with different ways to do that. Sort of fill up your toolbox so that as you navigate out in the world, you have at your disposal means by which you can take the gospel and deliver it to somebody and call them to, to believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. And so that's kind of where all this is coming from and where it is going. And uh, last week we, we sort of started nailing down what is the gospel. Some of you may have handouts that I gave last week, and there's still blanks at the end. We'll fill those blanks in today if you happen to have those still tucked away in your Bible. Others, it'll be on the screen so you can take it down just the same. I was thinking through this week... Um, as I was thinking about my own life and in my own experience in church life, what are sort of the main barriers that are, I think are common to all of us to sharing the gospel with other people? What are the things that stop us? What are the things that get in the way when we are navigating our lives and we run across somebody and we know that they are far from God? What are the things that stop us from opening our mouths and telling them this message that we're studying and uh, sort of some things that popped into my mind, this is not an exhaustive list, but I, I would guarantee that maybe some or all of these things 
would be things that you can identify with, because they're all things that I can identify with. And I just want to put them out there on the table so that we can lay our finger on them and identify them so that when we're navigating in the world and these barriers start to rise up in our heart, we can identify them, know that they're not from the Lord, that they're from the evil one who wants to stop us from taking the most powerful message in the world and delivering it to somebody who needs to hear it. And we can move by the power of the Holy Spirit through these barriers. The first one that I thought of is just distraction. We live very distracted lives. Uh, I think that's probably fair to say if most of us were busy. Uh, there are a thousand things that captivate our attention on any given day, on any given week. We have careers, we have families, we have school events, we have sporting things, we've got uh, hobbies, we've got just a thousand things that are constantly pulling at us and our attention constantly, captivating our minds, captivating our thoughts. And, and what happens is we just sort of move through a day, we move through a week, we move through a month, just chasing after all these things that are pulling at us, and all of a sudden days go by, weeks go by, months go by, years go by, and we've not talked to anybody about the gospel. It just doesn't... It doesn't cross our radar because our lives are cluttered and busy and we're just distracted with other things. Does that identif- do you identify with that one at all? Do you ever find yourself just cruising through life and never thinking about the lost people around you? Never thinking, hey, I need to call a time out here and sit down with Joe and tell him about Jesus because Joe needs to know this. We're just distracted. I think the second thing, and perhaps maybe the biggest of all, is fear. We're afraid. Let's just be honest. We, we, we all live with some level of fear when it comes to sitting down and talking to somebody else about the condition of their soul. Um, we're afraid of how the message is going to be received. We're afraid they're going to reject the message and reject us. We're afraid they're going to think we're religious fanatics, lunatics, weirdos. Uh, we're afraid that we'll mess up the, the thing. We'll mess it up. We'll get it wrong. We won't do it well. We won't do it right. And some people just live with this absolute terror. I can't talk about Jesus because if I, I'm going to say the wrong thing, they're going to go to hell because I blew it. Listen, nobody's going to go to hell because you blew it. They're going to go to hell because they're sinners who never heard the gospel and believed it. They don't have a shot if you don't even give it a try. I can remember very vividly early on in my ministry. This was somewhere circa 1998. I had gone to Spartanburg, South Carolina, um, to uh, evangelism training. This was a training seminar on a particular method of sharing the gospel. Uh, I was an associate pastor, youth guy at the time, and I had gone to this training with the senior pastor. And uh, we had gone to this church in Spartanburg, and we had spent two days being taught and walking through this method for sharing the gospel. And it was a sort of a, a step-by-step method with an acrostic, and you just memorized it, and the goal was you memorize it, and then you go door-to-door knocking on people's door. Whoever gets there, you start with a little survey, a religious survey, that was really just a ruse, to be honest with you. At the time, I didn't realize it was just a ruse to figure out if they were believers or not. And when you figured out they weren't, then you just you launch into this step-by-step thing. And so I spent two days training on this thing, and it wasn't like it was new territory for me anyway, but it was just a new way of putting it together. And the end of the training seminar, uh, they had a, a, a sort of a practical hands-on. You actually went out into a neighborhood there in Spartanburg and started knocking on people's doors, you know, putting this into practice. And so uh, there had to be sort of a native of Spartanburg to uh, drive you around because Charlestonians don't know their way around Spartanburg unless they know where the beacon is to go get a greasy burger. But that's about it, right? And so uh, it just so happens that my sister and brother-in-law and their family lived in Spartanburg and went to that church. And so my sister, who's 10 years older, you may have met her when she's come to visit, uh, was the driver for my senior pastor and myself to go through this neighborhood in Spartanburg knocking on doors. Now, if you don't know me, you, you may not know this about me. I'm naturally not the most outgoing person. I mean, I am in general in areas where I'm comfortable. But if you take me out of a, a world where I'm comfortable and you place me in a foreign land like Spartanburg, all of a sudden... I'm very anxious and nervous. It does not come natural to me. It's outside of my box to go to a stranger's house, bang on the door, and walk through this gospel plan. So we're going door to door. And, of course, you know how this goes there. You know, some people aren't home, and uh, different things happen along the way. And we're taking turns. You know, we're going, okay, this next house is yours, you know. And, and, you know, it's my turn. We go up to the house, and I'm thinking, you know, honestly, this is just Greg being honest with you. God, don't let him be home. Just don't let him be home. 
We ring the doorbell, and I see a light flick on, and I go, oh, dear Lord, they're home. My next thought is, God, let them be believers. Um, Let us identify that real quick. I'm scared to death, honestly, scared to death. Scared to death to do this in general. Scared to death to do this with my senior pastor and my sister at the same time. The lady comes to the door, and uh, I uh, nervously start going through this thing, you know, and it's pretty clear early on that she uh, doesn't fully understand the gospel, and so I need to, I need to, to deliver this message. And uh, so I start in, you know, I start in. What else are you going to do, right? You're gonna, it's, it's, it's run and hide in the bushes or you go through it. So um, I start through it. And I got to, like, the first part, you know, the acrostic was faith, and the first part was forgiveness, and the, the A was it's available Uh, But it's not automatic. And I got about to that part, and it was like somebody took a giant eraser and scrubbed it across my brain. And I went completely blank. I couldn't remember anything. And there's this lady looking me in the eyes, pastor behind me on one side, sister on the other side, and I'm blank. And I can't remember anything in this presentation. And so I just start winging it. I mean, I'm going through the best I can from the, you know, from memory. I'm thinking, what can I pull out? John 3.16. So I go to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, um, and he died and he rose again. I mean, I'm making it up completely, making up John 3.16. I can't even remember John 3.16. At this point, it's gone from bad to just plain humiliating. The lady is, is chuckling at me while I'm doing it. It's like she was actually pulling for me to be able to get it together and get through this thing. And uh, I just bobbled my way. I don't even remember. From that point on, I've tried to mark it out of my life's history uh, as far as my remembrance. But I remember thinking, dear Lord, this is bad enough, but I've got to get in a car with these two afterwards. And I am never going to hear the end of this. And, uh, well, needless to say, it was a good long time before I heard the end of it. I tell you that story only to tell you we all mess it up. We all take opportunities and we don't always get it right. But the reality we need to understand is that nobody's eternal destiny is hanging on the balance of you getting it right or me getting it right. It may be that their destiny is hanging on the balance of whether or not we choose to go, but it's not about whether or not we get it right. I blow it. You blow it. I understand that fear. But it's not an excuse to not go. Another distraction is doubt. Doubt. Sometimes we just doubt that the person is going to believe. Have you ever had that experience? I know John over there is lost. But I, I just don't think he's, gonna, he's not going to buy this thing. I don't think he's going to believe it. And so I'm just not even going to go there with him. We forget that in Jeremiah 23, 29, Jeremiah writes, this is the Lord speaking, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. You know what? You and I have no clue what's going on in somebody's heart. We have no clue. And the Word of God, the Gospel in particular, is just exactly the, like God describes it. It's like a hammer that can bust up the hardest heart in a moment. We have no idea. We should never doubt the power of the Gospel to transform a human life and a human heart. It doesn't matter how hard the case is. Just share the message. But sometimes we doubt and so we don't open our mouths. Another thing is we don't feel qualified. Have you ever got to a place where you're like, I just don't feel qualified. I don't think I know enough. I don't think I understand enough. I don't have it all completely figured out myself. And they may ask me questions that I, I don't know. Maybe I need to get them to the pastor or get them to somebody that's more qualified than me. Listen, hear me directly. If you know enough to be saved, then you know enough to tell somebody else how to be. If you know enough to be saved, then you know enough to tell somebody else how to be saved. That's all you need. I mean, yes, we grow in our faith, and yes, we can grow in our ability to answer people's objections and questions, but there's no shame in in, in saying what you know, and then when somebody asks you a question that you don't know, saying, man, that's a wonderful question, and that's, you know what? I don't fully understand the answer to that, but I will get an answer, and I'll come back to you, and we'll talk about it again. There's no shame in that. But if you know enough to be saved, you know enough to tell somebody else how to. I think two other things. Sometimes, and this one's painful, sometimes we just lack compassion. We really just lack compassion. We, 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 we just sometimes, honestly, if we're just being plain, raw, honest, we know that there's people around us that are lost and dying, going to hell, but we just really, on a lot of occasions, don't really care. We just really don't care. 
I mean, we've got our own lives to care about. We've got our own families to care about. We've got all these things on our plate to care about. And that's just out there. It's a problem that's always out there. And so we just somehow put that in a category. And when we sort of, sort of block off our hearts, really, to the lost. We need to care. We'll talk more about that next week. And then finally, I would just say one of the distractions that I see is sometimes our theology is a, is, a, is a barrier. It's a barrier. Particularly those within the Reformed Christian world tend to use our view of the sovereignty of God as a shelter under which we can hide our sin of not sharing the gospel. We just sort of resort back to, well, God is sovereign and He is sovereign over salvation. And we we fall back to election and predestination and all these things that we understand or we believe. And we say, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not really that important in the peace. This is all of God. And if they don't, you know, if they're going to get the gospel, they're going to get the gospel. Whether I go or I don't go, you know, somehow or other God's going to get it to them. So it's not that big of a deal if I don't. Let me just say this. If your theology allows you to come to that conclusion, then your theology is messed up. It's really messed up. Because the Scriptures are clear that every believer is called to be an evangelist and to take the Gospel. And the only way that anyone can be saved is that somebody tell them the Gospel. Somebody has to go. It's by human agency that the Gospel spreads. And we're all called to do it and to go. How God works all that out in His sovereignty is His business, and it's up to Him, and we can discuss that at a later time. But how you view God's sovereignty, if it, if it causes you to make excuses for not sharing your faith, then you've got a messed up view of God's sovereignty and of how people are saved. How will they hear if nobody tells them? Who's going to tell them if nobody goes? I think Paul said something like that. So let me ask you a question. Look at those barriers. Do any of those resonate in your life? Has there ever been a time in your life when one of those things closed your mouth and stopped you from opening up and sharing the gospel? You need to understand, like I do, that those things are satanic barriers. When those things are rising up in our heart, it is the enemy who desperately does not want the gospel to go to one more soul because they are enslaved to him. He owns them. And when we bring the gospel, we bring the hammer that destroys the chain by which he holds them. And so if he can bring up doubts in your mind, if he can bring up fears in your mind, if he can keep us distracted on other things, if he can make us feel unqualified and get us to a place where we just don't care, he wins and the gospel doesn't move and the lost remain lost. So when you're going about your business this week and this month and this year and you're navigating around lost people and you feel these things rising up, identify them. That is doubt. It's not from the Lord. It's from the enemy who does not want this person to hear the gospel. That's fear. That's not from the Lord. That's from the enemy who doesn't want her to hear the gospel. And stop and say, Spirit of God, help me overcome this barrier and open my mouth right now. These are things we need to identify, we need to name them, and we need to fight them in our lives. I don't know if you read this. You probably did. It was a pretty big story in the month of December. Um, There was a a big crackdown in China by the Chinese government on believers in the underground church in China. In particular, there was a church there called Early Rain Covenant Church that was pastored by a man by the name of Wang Yi, who uh, was a pretty pretty remarkable man in and of himself. He was... Uh, prior to 2005 when he came to Christ because somebody brought him the gospel. Prior to that, he was named one of the 50 most prominent public intellectuals in China. Somebody brought to him the gospel and he was converted to Christ. Which, by the way, the very act of that is illegal in that nation. Three years later in 2008, he founded Early Rain Covenant Church and... um, uh, the church has been in, in, in process of worshiping against the law for quite some time, as are many, many churches in that nation. Back in December, uh, the Chinese government raided the church, arrested uh, Pastor uh, Wang Yi and over a hundred of the uh, members of the church and uh, did what the Chinese government tends to do in such cases, arrest, torture, intimidate, interrogate. Some of them were let go. I'm not sure at this, at this point if we even 
know yet where the pastor is. But this pastor knew that this was coming because it was on the horizon in their culture. He knew it was inevitable it was going to happen. And he had penned a letter uh, prior to that. Uh, and he had given instruction that if he's arrested uh, and incarcerated, that he wanted the letter published for the world to see. And it was. If you get a chance, go online and you can read the letter in its entirety. It's a remarkable letter. I just want to give you an excerpt of it because uh, I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. He said this in his letter. He said, as a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short. And God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who will turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China. To testify to the world about our Christ. To testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven. To testify to the earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling I've received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward Him. For this reason, I'm joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though... Submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. Now, I have to say those are pretty remarkable words. Coming from anyone's mouth. But coming from the mouth of one who understands that there's a cost in his world to sharing the gospel. It's really remarkable. He says some incredible things. One of the things he says that captures my attention, but I won't take it down the side road of it, is this. Wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. There's a lot of folks in our culture that would do really well to embrace that thought. Instead of railing against the wicked rulers, understand that God allows such things so that God's people will repent and turn to Christ. Instead of railing against the wicked rulers, maybe we need to... Repent and turn to Christ. Maybe that's a better response. But that's a side road. That's a sermon for another day. What I want you to hear, though, is the mouth of a man who lives in a culture where your life is hanging in the balance every time you tell the gospel message to somebody who's lost, who says, I understand that this is my calling. I do this at the risk of my life because this is what Christ has commissioned me and everyone who follows him to do. I understand the cost, and I'm willing to pay it. To share the gospel in a place where fear is a legitimate response, unlike ours, where you're not just afraid that somebody's going to think you're weird, but you're afraid that you're going to actually be killed and your family tortured. And yet, all across China, there are believers who take that risk every single day. That should stand on our doorstep as a challenge, folks. We live in a nation where there really are no ramifications for sharing the gospel other than social ramifications, at worst. And yet we don't. But we must. We must. Well, what is this gospel message? Well, we made our way through the bulk of it last week. And it's actually quite a simple message. And it goes like this. There's a God. There's a God who's real. He made everything and He owns everything. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who created everything. He's the one who created you. He's the one who creates me. He's the one who owns it all. Everything belongs to Him. And the Bible tells us about Him something that's particular and important. That He's holy. That is to say that He's completely perfect in all ways. That He's absolutely sinless. Everything that He says, everything that He does, every attitude that He holds is absolutely perfect. Perfectly right. Perfectly pure. Perfectly good on every single level. And this God who made us, and this God who owns us, and this God who is holy, demands that those that He made be holy as well. He demands and requires of us perfect obedience to His law. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 tells us, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Because the book of Hebrews tells us that His eyes are too pure to look on evil and to associate with it. And that's a real problem for people like us, for men and for women. It's a real problem that, that this God who made us and owns us and is perfectly holy demands that we too be holy because the reality is all of us are made in His image. But even though we're made in His image, none of us are holy. We've all violated His law. We have all by nature and by choice rebelled against Him. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, it tells us, it says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you. Our iniquities, our sins, our unholiness has separated us from Him. It's hidden His face from us. And if that isn't bad enough, the Bible tells us that there's a payment due. Not only are we separated from God by our sin, but there's a payment that we owe. There's a debt that we owe to Him. And the book of Romans tells us that the wages or the payment that's due is eternal death. Our sin against an eternal God has earned us an eternal death, an eternal separation in a place called hell that is awful beyond our imagination. Completely absent of the blessing presence of the Lord. Only the presence of His wrath eternally. And to make matters worse, there are no good works and there are no good intentions that we can in, embrace that save anybody. There's nothing we can do about it. You can't go to church enough. You can't read the Bible enough. You can't pray enough. You can't go out there and share the gospel enough to save your soul. It's not a deal like people think about, you know, where there's a, a, big, a big scale and we get to the end of life and all of our good stuff's going to go on one side, all the bad stuff's going to go on the other. And as long as the good outweighs the bad, we're, we're golden, we're in. It's not like that. Our good works, the Bible tells us, and our good intentions can't save us at all. We can't be religious enough. We can't be moral enough. Forget even trying. It's useless. Even our, the best of our stuff is filthy and tainted by bad motives. To try to earn our salvation by being good and doing good would be equivalent to us all going and lining up on Folly Beach after church today and, and somebody shooting a gun in the air and, you know, saying the first one to England will be saved. Right? We can all launch out. Roger Beardmore, wherever he is, he's out there somewhere, he probably will make it further than most of us because he swims all the time. Josh Dickert could probably beat out most of us because he swims a lot. You know, I'm going to float like a tadpole about 30 feet and that's it. But Roger's endurance to make it further than me and Josh's endurance to make it further than you, it doesn't change the fact that he's not making it to England. He's going to drown. There's no amount of good works that can save us. And that's a remarkably bad place to be in. A God who owns us and created us, who's holy and who demands perfect obedience, and we are certainly not perfectly obedient. In fact, we're separated from Him because of our sin. We're due His judgment forever when we die, and there's nothing that we can do humanly to save ourselves. That is the predicament of every person who walks this planet. Until they come to understand that God has done for them what they could never do for themselves in sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ who was perfectly God, fully God, and fully man, who left heaven and was born of a virgin here. He lived the perfect life, and he went to a cross where he willingly gave up his life. He shed his blood on that cross so that people like you and I could have eternal life. He paid our debt that we owed. He took all of our filthy, rotten sin upon Himself and He paid the price for that so that His perfect righteousness could be credited to our account so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin because that was paid for. He sees the perfect righteousness of His own Son. That Jesus who died rose again three days later from the grave, conquering death, proving that his sacrifice of his own life 
was sufficient to pay the price for any who will entrust themselves to him. But it's also worth the note that that same Christ who rose again is going to come one day and he's going to hold us all accountable. Every human who's ever lived is going to stand accountable before him. For how we've lived, for how we've responded to what he's done for us. And that's where it brings, brings it really to something personal. So what do we do? What do you have to do? If that's the case, if I'm in that bad of shape and my only hope is what Christ has done for me, how do I, how do I make this transaction mine? Well, the Bible is really clear about it. You must turn from everything that offends God. There's a word for that. It's called repentance. I want to give you a definition for that this morning. Repent means a change of mind involving both turning from sin and turning to God. Three pieces to that. A change of mind that involves both turning from sin and turning to God in Christ. Don't listen to the person who comes along to you and says, all that repentance is is a change of mind. You just think differently. But it doesn't involve anything else. There are those in our world who teach a gospel that says that. But that's not the truth. The truth is, in order to receive what Christ has done on my behalf and have it credited to my account, I have a change of mind that says, you know what? I am no longer going to live the way that I've lived. I am no longer going to be content in my sin. I am going to abandon every effort to save myself, and I am going to turn away from my sinful, rebellious life, and I'm going to turn to, consciously turn to, following hard after Christ for the remainder of my days. That's what repentance is. In Acts chapter 26, verse 19 and 20, Paul, speaking before a king, King Agrippa, said this, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. When a man or a woman has that change of mind, that says, I'm not going to live for myself, I'm going to live for Christ. And he consciously turns from living his own way and embraces the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and truly repents of his sin, then it affects the way they live. It affects the way she lives. It affects the way he lives. Things begin to change in their life. In areas where they used to be disobedient, all of a sudden they start becoming obedient to Christ little by little. And that becomes the evidence that they've repented. In Titus chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes to Titus and he talks about certain people who claim to have repented but their lives have never changed. And he says this, um, uh, well, that's the wrong verse, so I put it up there wrong. Listen to me, don't believe the screen. Titus 1, 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing any good. There was a group of people who claimed repentance and claimed to have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but their actions did not match up to their claim. There was no evidence in the way that they lived that what they had actually claimed had taken place had actually taken place. Repentance is a willful turning from an old way of living to a new way of living. From following after my own desires and sinful wishes to following after Christ and obeying Him. And there's a cost of following Him that we have to count. Jesus said it this way, If any man wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, which is another way of saying just die to yourself, follow after me. To embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior is free. It's a free exchange. But it requires that you die to yourself and turn from living to please yourself and turn toward Him in a life of obedience to Him. And then we just simply plead for Christ to save us and trust Him. Romans 10, 9 and 10, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be 
saved. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. You'll be saved. How does a person cry out to the Lord and find You know, when I was growing up, the way that uh, the church in which I, uh, the church culture in which I grew up taught people to, to share their go- the gospel was there was a thing called the sinner's prayer. Did some of you grow up with that? There was a, like a written prayer that was about a paragraph long. And the way was you go through this deal here and you get to the end, you just tell them if you want to be a Christian, you just bow your head and pray this prayer. And you get people to pray the prayer and then after they prayed that prayer, you say, all right, boom, you're a Christian. Well, good intentions, but bad methodology. Because subtly when we do that, we're teaching that somehow the prayer is magic in and of itself. That somehow those words uttered in that particular prayer do something magical. It's not the words of any prayer that save. It's the repentance and turning in the heart and believing on Jesus that saves. And that can erupt out of a life and a heart in prayer in a thousand different ways. It can look like a a poor tax collector who's in the back of the temple where a Pharisee is up at the front prancing around proud of his own self-righteousness. It can look like the the tax collector at the back who simply won't even look up to heaven because he's so ashamed of his sin and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It can look like that. It can look like a thief that's hanging on a cross right next to the Lord Jesus. That assessing his own life in the very last moments of it looks over and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It can look like that. And it can look like a thousand ways in between. Whatever way a man or a woman expresses to the Lord that they understand that they are a sinner, a rebellious sinner who's run from him, and now they want to turn from that and embrace him trusting what Jesus has done and not their own works to save them. However that comes out, it's a prayer that God will respond to and He will save that soul. He'll save. He will never turn away the sinner who comes to Him on those terms. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's exactly what you need to do. You need to abandon your own life You need to die to how you've lived. You need to recognize that you're a sinner and confess that to the Lord. Confess to Him that you understand that Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross for you is your only hope to be saved. And and consciously tell Him, Lord, I am turning from how I've been living and I want to run after You for the rest of my life. That's how a man or woman is saved. And you know, some remarkable things happen when that transaction takes place. God makes some remarkable promises. He will do something, in fact, a lot of things in your life. The first thing He'll do is He'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. If you do that, God will forgive you. Every sin, no matter how deep, no matter how long, no matter how dark, He will forgive. He will wipe the slate clean. The Old Testament tells us this. He says that God will remember your sins no more. It doesn't mean God turns into a forgetful granddad who just doesn't remember what happened. What it means is he will never hold those things against you ever again. When you die and you stand before him, there will be no remembrance of those things. There will be no movie screen that shows you and all your rotten sin to be held against you. Those things are done, forgiven, wiped away, nailed to the cross with Jesus, gone forever never to be accountable for again. He'll forgive you. He'll take your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west, which is about as far as you can cast anything. Gone. Not only will He forgive you, He'll justify you. He'll justify you. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, we were, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means to be justified? It's a legal term. That simply means the judge declares you not guilty and brings the gavel down. The moment a person repents of their sin and entrusts their lives to Jesus Christ, they are immediately, the judge pounds the gavel, not guilty. And that is a forever declaration. So that we don't have to live in fear of what's going to happen when we die and stand before the Lord as though somehow our sins are going to somehow bring guilt back upon us. 
We are declared. We are justified. The judge makes his ruling in the case. Not guilty. It gets better. Not only does he forgive us, not only does he declare us not guilty, but he adopts us into his family. What about that? Those who were his enemies previously, he now says, come be a part of my family. It's not, a, it's not a deal where God says, well, you were a pretty rotten sinner. I'm going to let you just inside the gate on the backside of heaven. we got a little small spot for you there. No. He says, come eat at my table. Come have a part in my inheritance as a son, as a daughter. You belong to me. where our sins had previously separated us from Him, He now invites us into His home. Where our sins had caused Him to hide His face from us, He now looks us square in the eyes and calls us son and daughter and says, come, eat at my table. Enjoy the blessings of being my child. Enjoy everything that I have to offer you. And it's all good. Just like any father to his children. If that isn't enough, He also sanctifies us. Which simply means the moment we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the moment we repent and entrust our lives to Him, He sets us apart from the the enemy's camp into His camp. We're set apart for the Lord for the rest of our lives. And He begins within us this process, this process of of chipping away all the sinful habits that we have and building into us what He calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And that becomes the journey for the rest of life. The moment we entrust our lives to Jesus by repenting of our sin and entrusting our lives to Christ, the moment we do that, the penalty of our sin is dealt with once and for all. But the presence of sin still kind of hangs around, doesn't it? still kind of hangs around. Our old habits don't die easy, do they? So the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. And He begins to help us. And He begins to convict us of those sins. And He begins to give us the power to fight and to resist And where we used to be filled with rage and anger, He begins to build inside of us peace and patience and kindness. Where we used to be harsh and mean with people, He builds into us gentleness. Where we used to not be able to control ourselves, we just did whatever our lustful flesh desired, He starts to give us self-control, the ability to say no to things we used to say yes to. He sanctifies us. He makes us more like Jesus. Day by day. Year by year, month by month. He reconciles us to Himself. That really is part of adoption, isn't it? Where we were separated, we're now reconciled. You know what that's like to have a relationship that goes sideways? And at some point you get reconciled and the relationship gets restored to how it was meant to be? That's what happens when we come to know Christ. We're reconciled to our God. Finally, He secures us for eternal life in heaven with Him. He grasps us into His hands and He says, I will never let you go. You are mine. And there's no one who can rip you out of my grasp. You will stumble and you will fall. You will make mistakes. You will not be perfect. But you belong to me. And I will secure you to the end. You don't have to live in fear every time you blow it. You don't have to live in fear every time you sin. You're mine. You're my child. Yes, like a father with his children, I may bring some discipline in your life to help the sanctification along, but I'll get you to the end so that when you die, you'll come to be with me. And at that point, you'll be made perfect. And we'll spend together eternity. Look at that list. Why would you not want those things from the one who made you? Why would you not want that? When you're talking to your neighbor across the fence, tell them the benefits of of coming to Christ and repenting. Let them know what God is willing to do for them and what God has already done for them. 
and say to them directly, because what I'm telling you is true, and because Christ is living today, He invites you to repent of your sin and embrace Him as your Lord and Savior. Why would you not want to do that right now? Why would you want to live one more breath without Christ? It makes no sense. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's nothing else that can be said, really. That's it. It really just comes down to, are you willing to die to yourself, admit your sin, and turn toward Jesus? And confess that you're not good enough and you can't be good enough. And confess that your only hope today, tomorrow, and for eternity is what Jesus did on the cross for you. Submit your life to Him. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And all of these things will be the reality of your life. My friends, that's the gospel. That's what a person needs to understand and know and do to be a Christian. Nothing more, really nothing less. If you're here today and you're a believer, you're a Christian, you've, you've already received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to challenge you with something, particularly those of you who are members of Grace on the Ashley. There's a little card that I asked you to pick up uh, during the uh, welcoming greeting. Did you grab those little cards? They say 321 at the top. I didn't even bring one for myself. Thank you, Steve. It's a 321 card. This is how I want to bring this message home for you if you're a believer here today. I want to ask you to do three things this year. I want you to commit to pray for three people that you know are far from God. Pray for three people that you know who are far from God. They can be your neighbors. They can be in your family. They can be co-workers. It can be anybody that you know. They come into the sort of the circle of your life that you know they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They never repented and entrusted their lives to Him. Just commit this year, 2019, on a regular basis to pray for them. Pray for them. And I want you to write their names on that blank. You don't have to write them right this second. It would be great if you would. If the Lord puts three people in your mind right now, then write their names down. Or maybe you'll want to go home as a, as a family or as a couple and talk about it and put some names down. Put this thing up on your refrigerator or somewhere so that we're going to remember to pray for them all throughout the year. And then I'm going to ask you to do a second thing. I want you to identify two people. They could be two of that first list, or they could be two different people that you know who are far from God that you're going to intentionally do acts of care for this year. You're going to do something that shows, that's an outworking of what Meredith sang and, and uh, uh, the lady sang a few minutes ago. Again, the eraser just hit my brain. Sorry, Deb. Um, two people that you can actively love this year, that you know don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You can offer to babysit their kids so they can go on a date. You can bring them dinner, invite them to your home. Something that you can do tangibly that says, hey, I love you, I care about you, you matter. Two people that you can care for. And I want you on that last line to write one name, one person, that you're going to intentionally share the message that you just heard this morning with. To the best of your ability, you're going to share the gospel with. Just one person. Pray for three. Care for two. Share with one. Brothers, is that too much to ask? You've got, you got a whole year almost. We've missed a few weeks here, so you're a little behind. But you've got the rest of the year, Okay? Three, two, one. This year. Fill it out. As a family, pray about it. Put it on your fridge or somewhere where it's in front of you and you won't forget. And do it. Don't let the enemy bring up those barriers and stop you. You do it this year. And watch and see what God will do. Through your praying, through your caring, and through your sharing. Make this the baseline. The starting point. Hey, you may get into this and you may realize I need three or four of these cards because I love what God's doing through me praying and caring and sharing. 
And we're going to celebrate together the fruit of that throughout the year as the Lord saves lost people that you know and that I know. Aren't we? We're going to celebrate that together this year. Okay? Let's pray. God, you are gracious and you are kind. You've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You're more than we could ever imagine. We don't deserve to be saved. We are not good. We are not moral. We are not religious enough to earn it. And yet, in your kindness, in your mercy, you have saved us. And in that transaction, there was some body, some man, some woman, some preacher, some teacher, some friend, some neighbor, some co-worker that took some time from their chaotic life to engage us in conversation and to explain to us how we could be saved. And God used that person as a part of His process of bringing us to faith. Lord, we consciously thank You for those who went into our lives and did that for us. And now we consciously pray, Lord, that You would help us this year to be that man, to be that woman, to be that friend, to be that neighbor that fills that role in somebody else's life. What we've received, help us to go and give. Lord, take these little cards. It's just a simple piece of paper. But bring to our hearts and our minds names that we can put on these blanks and motivate us this year to pray for lost people around us, to care about people in our sphere, and to at least one time open our mouths and to the best of our ability with the help of your Spirit deliver that message that we heard today, the Gospel. And God, we're trusting you that you will cause your Gospel to go in power and redeem souls. We believe that you have them waiting, in fact, for somebody to come. Don't let us evade this, Lord. Don't let us make excuses. Help us to obey you for Christ's sake and for his glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.